I trust you brought your Bibles. Now would be a good time to turn to John chapter 15. Little babies are wonderful, aren't they? They're so soft. Their noises are even sometimes so cute. But it's cute to us because we don't expect babies to stay babies. We tolerate their behavior. It's cute to us at that time. But after a while, it would get very old. We expect maturity. We expect growth. And so we would tolerate screaming cries or selfish attitudes or even messes that they leave. We think, that's a baby. One person described a baby as simply a digestive apparatus (laughs) with a loud noise at one end and no responsibility at the other end. (laughs) But we say, that's okay. They're babies. We want them, however, to grow up. My son's first noises, I wish I could have recorded them. And I remember some of the first words he tried to form. And I thought, did you hear that? He just said, that's wonderful. But if he tried that now, I'd be worried. I would probably be appalled if it continued. In our kitchen, we have what some of you probably have. We have a pantry door with markings on it that mark stages of my son's growth, height. His favorite day of all the dates is also recorded there, August 5th, 2001. That was the day that we measured he was now taller than mom. <laughs> and he looks at that. Look at I'm taller now. I'm growing. I'm maturing. We have begun a study in John 15 last time that we continue tonight all about growth, not growth of a baby into an adult, but the growth of uh, of the branch of a vine producing mature fruit. The idiom is not a child. The idiom is a vineyard. It was a familiar idiom to the disciples, and we want to refresh our memory by looking at these verses. I am the true vine... My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full. The marks of a disciple. A disciple's growth is progressive. We noted that last time. We noticed that Jesus employs three terms. Fruit, verse 2. More fruit, in the same verse. And later on, much fruit. That is a natural progression of a branch connected to a vine. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit. My Father is glorified, Jesus said, in that you will bear much fruit. We also mentioned that not everybody's rate of growth is the same. Jesus predicted that some would be fruitful 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold in Matthew chapter 13. But the point is that a true disciple will bear some outward evidence of growth. You'll be able to tell. Now before we jump into the rest of our study, a few preliminary remarks about spiritual growth. First of all, spiritual growth should happen. It is to be expected, just like you expect a baby to grow up to be an adult. You expect certain marked phases of development. Babyhood, toddlerhood, childhood, adolescence, adulthood. That's expected, normal stuff. It's the same way spiritually. Christianity is way more than obstetrics. It's not just seeing people birthed into the kingdom through evangelism. We get excited. We clap when people do that, and we should. But we should applaud growth. I have no greater joy, said John, than to hear that my children walk in the truth. So it's not just obstetrics. Christianity is pediatrics, discipleship. Sometimes it's the emergency room. And it carries all the way up into old age. When a Christian ceases to grow, watch out, because when you cease to grow or go forward, you begin to decay. It's sort of like riding a bicycle Uphill. If you're not making forward progress, you will go back. The decay process can be rapid. So it should happen. Spiritual growth should happen. A second preliminary remark. Spiritual growth has nothing to do with physical age. You might expect that the older a person is physically as a Christian, that that would correspond spiritually, but it doesn't happen always that way. We have seen... Older people act very spiritually immature, not always. We have also seen relatively young people become very spiritually mature and very wise for their age. Charles Spurgeon noted, in the church of God there are children who are 70 years old. Yes, little children displaying all of the infirmities of declining years. One would not like to say of a man of 80 that he has scarcely cut his wisdom teeth. And yet there are such. On the other hand, there are fathers in the church of God, wise, stable, instructed, who are comparatively young men. The Lord can cause His people to grow rapidly and far outstrip their years. Brings us to the third preliminary remark about spiritual growth. You can grow as much as you want. The hindrance isn't outward, it would be inward. You can cooperate as much as you want and grow as rapidly as you can. In Second Peter, Peter the Apostle says that God has given us all things, 
all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. Then it says, Therefore, you are to add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and a list of additives are given. As if to say, God's given you all the fertilizer you need. You can grow as much as you want to. Today I want to show you how God takes us into maturity. Now, we're going to look at, you have the outline in your bulletin, those last three that are after the second point, but we need to just briefly recap before we jump into the pruning process. We described last week, or two weeks ago, we described a true disciple. The description of a true disciple, according to John 15, according to Jesus Christ, is a true disciple is both connected to Christ and cared for by the Father. I'm the vine, you're connected to me. If you're connected to me, you're a true disciple. And my Father tends you. He is the vine dresser. That's the description of a disciple. Connected to Christ, cared for by the Father. We mentioned that the branch in a vineyard is of no inherent value. The wood is good for nothing. They use it for kindling. They don't build anything with it. The value of the branch comes only in its connection to the vine. If it is connected, fruit happens. And so that the significance of a Christian is his connection to Christ. If you want to live a significant life, if you want to live a life of importance and meaning, stay close to Jesus. It is that connection of abiding. We also mentioned that this cannot be uh, merely a ritualistic connection. That is, you can't say, well, I'm connected to Christ because I have committed uh, certain acts of a ritual, I've performed certain ceremonies in my life, and I've done all sorts of religious things. Therefore, I'm connected. Not necessarily. There's the difference between Christendom and Christianity. There's this umbrella of Christendom, of people who gather and even call themselves Christians, but it's really just a, an umbrella of Christendom. You might look at them and see... Green leaves, foliage is there, it provides shade, and it's beautiful. But there's no life-giving connection that produces enduring real fruit. And Jesus underscores that here. It is not only not ritualistic, but it's not a genetic connection. We discussed that last time as well. In fact, we mentioned that the whole purpose of the analogy of the vineyard was in reference to Isaiah chapter 5 where God said, Israel is my vineyard. And they rested in that fact. They thought, we've always been the vineyard of God, but God even back then said, but you're not fruitful. And so Jesus says, I am the true vine. So you can't say, I'm connected. God and I are like this because I've done rituals or because my parents are Christians and my grandparents And therefore, it must be passed down in the genes. No, you may get into a country club like that, but not into heaven. There's no group rates for heaven. The connection is not genetic. The connection is not ritualistic. The connection must be individual. It must be personal. And it must be evidential. You have to prove it. You have to show it. You have to see it. And that's the whole meaning of this idea of being fruitful. If you're connected to Christ, you'll see it. 
there'll be fruit in your life. We gave you a few examples of what fruit was according to the Bible. Fruit is a number of things. Number one, it can be converts, people you win to Christ. Paul spoke in Romans 1 of visiting the Romans that he might have fruit among them, just like he had among other Gentiles. Also, fruit is your Christian character. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's Christian character. Third, fruit is giving. Paul spoke about giving financially as fruit, not only to the Romans, but to the Philippians. He said, I'm not saying I need a gift, but I want fruit to abound to your account. And then fourth, we briefly discussed that fruit is worship, praise. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, he writes about the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips. So that was last time. That's sort of a sum up, a recap. There are three things left that demonstrate true discipleship. True discipleship is demonstrated in pruning, in prayer, and in pleasure. Look back with me at verse 2. Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That could be Judas that he was referring to. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. One of the marks then of a disciple is that he or she gets pruned by God. Now, understand, don't misunderstand. He's not saying he'll make you a prune. He'll turn you into a prunish, prune-faced individual, mad. No, in fact, one of the marks is joy, as we'll see in just a little bit. The word Jesus employs for prune could be translated, he cleans. Katharizo. You know what that means. Catharsis. That's the word we get from katharizo. To cleanse, to heal. Every branch that bears forth fruit, he katharizo, he cleanses, he prunes, as the New King James puts it. It means to clean a branch of excess foliage. This is how it works. One of the most important activities of a grape farmer was to take out the shears, the knife in those days, and to cut away certain things. First of all, dead wood on the branch. It doesn't do any good. It's dead. It breeds disease. You want to take away the dead wood so that the plant isn't susceptible to disease. Then the farmer would also strip away living tissue that would just be extraneous growth. In other words, there's a certain amount of sap that is produced and flows into the branches. You don't want that sap going anywhere. The branch by itself could produce many clusters, but they would be of inferior quality. So the idea is let's cut some of that extra growth back to concentrate that sap into the bunches of grapes so they'll be healthier, bigger, better. Concentration. Listen to this. This is a... A a gardener at a flower show who won the prize for the best chrysanthemums. And they asked him, how'd you do it? What is your secret? He said simply this. We concentrate all of the strength of the plant into one or two blooms. If we would allow it to bear all of the flowers that it could, none would be worth showing. 
If you want a prize specimen, you must be content with a single chrysanthemum instead of a score. The point Jesus is making is that God, out of love, removes things in our lives that we have allowed to live that we don't need. They hinder us. They hinder real fruit, real growth. Bunches, blossoms of self, sin. God goes after those bad habits, those old habits, the the rotten attitude, the ungodly activities. Because frankly, our lives, our our branches can get laden down. We we, we can get full of ourselves. And, And God says, I love you so much. I'm going to perform surgery. I'm going to cut stuff back that that simply is hindering the best possible kind of growth. When I was first a baby Christian, I felt the knife. When I was a baby Christian, I was naive. I just knew there was a, a God and he had a son named Jesus and I'm saved. That's about all I knew. I thought it was perfectly okay to continue using drugs. I was that naive. But God came in to cut that out of my life. That's not fruitful. Then there were certain relationships I was involved with that hindered my growth. Again, the knife. Then there were attitudes toward my parents of pride, rebellion, self-reliance. Again, the knife. And I still feel the knife. Do you? Like layers of an onion, he, he gets it down to its core and deals with us. Pruning. Now, why does God do this? Is God just, does He just get off on seeing us painful? Does God go, ha, 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 they're suffering. They're supposed to. They're Christians. No, Jesus says why. That you might be more fruitful. This is how it works. If you abide in Christ, you're fruitful. If you're fruitful, you'll be pruned, which should cause some of you to be worried if you're not being pruned. Because if you're really abiding in Him and you're being fruitful, the pruning shears come that you might even be more fruitful. Now this helps answer a question. And I want you to listen carefully. Here's the question. Why do bad things happen to God's people? We would say, why do bad things happen to good people? But that'd be a little tougher to define, I think. Let's just say, why do bad things happen to God's people? People who love God. People who are fruitful. Why would God allow them to happen? Those are bad things. Now be careful. Be careful that you don't begin to assign the title bad to something that is actually good. I'll give you an example. There was a guy in the Old Testament named Joseph who had a rough upbringing, a bad childhood, because he had brothers who hated him. They were jealous of him. And you know the story. They sold him as a slave. He became a prisoner. He had years of suffering. But through a series of circumstances, he became eventually the second in charge of the kingdom of Egypt. Second over all the world. Which allowed him to use his authority to bring his father and brothers, family members, uh, to Egypt during the famine to let them multiply so that eventually the children of Israel would be huge and God would give them a new land. There's a lot of bad stuff that happened. But listen to what he said. He said to his brothers, 
But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. It was painful. It was uncomfortable. It was hard. But Joseph, even Joseph, did not assign that as being bad. God meant this for good. This is to be fruitful. In fact, that's what his father said on his deathbed, right? Joseph, you're a fruitful bough whose branches go over the wall. Now, if the farmer goes out there with his knife and he's approaching the branch, if the branch could talk, what would it say? It would say, ouch. It would say, where do you come off, man? How can you be a vine dresser of love? How can you have any love when you're going to actually cut something out of my life and I'm going to have pain? And yet so many people do that with God. You know why? Because God looks at the end, the fruit, the result. It's going to be better. We say it's hard. God says it will help. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Now no chastening seems joyful for the present, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. God prunes. Now, how does God prune? Well, He prunes a couple of different ways. Several, but two are mentioned here. First of all, by Scripture. He says in verse 3, You are already clean. Same word, katharizo. You are already pruned, cleaned, because of the word which I have spoken to you. Scriptures are useful in cleansing us. They have a, a cleansing effect. Sometimes they soothe and comfort. Other times they confront and they cut deeply, right? There are warnings and reproofs and rebukes. And sometimes we read a passage of scriptures and we go, I'm not going to underline that one. (laughs) It's just as true, but I don't want to claim that one. But it cuts as we read it. It cleanses us. Again, the writer of Hebrews says, The Word of God is full of living power. It is sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into our innermost thoughts and desires, It exposes us for what we really are. That's why sometimes when you read a book or a verse of Scripture or hear a certain message, you walk away sometimes a little bit agitated because the Holy Spirit's been messing around, saying, here comes a knife. Now, there's another way He does it. He does it by adversity, by trials. Suffering cuts away certain tendencies, certain habits, certain desires that we have. Suffering can be used to prune us. As I see it, there's a couple of approaches God uses. Approach number one in adversity is corrective pruning. Corrective. It's to get you back on the right path. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. It's our tendency. We often go the wrong path. Adversity slaps us back on the right path. I know where to go. It's corrective. That's the reasons parents... Give children spankings. It's not because parents go, Oh, goody, it's spanking day. You will get spanked twice a week whether you need it or not. It didn't happen that way. It's done to correct the behavior of the child. The apostle wrote, Do not despise the spankings of the Lord. That's a free rendering. For the chastening of the Lord. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Have you ever seen, have you ever seen a brat? I'm not asking you to name names. But you all know at least one brat. 
You ever stop to wonder, why why is that child a brat? Because the child's been left to himself without any correction. And when you're around that child and you get agitated, I've been around people, I'm thinking, I would like to spank this child. I can't, I'm not the parent, but I would like to. This child needs that. Well, God knows that as well about us. C.S. Lewis wrote, Pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. Listen to that again. Pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. Ouch! What is it, God? (laughs) I'm listening, Lord. David wrote, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I keep your word. That's corrective pruning. A second approach that God uses is what I would call constructive pruning. He wants to make you better, stronger, built up, more valuable, more viable. And so he prunes, he cuts away, takes certain things away to build up other things. If you are on the shore of the ocean, you go into a nice quiet cove, you will notice that the rocks in the quietest coves are the sharpest. You have to go out to those rocks that have the full buffeting of the sea. Where all the storms hit, there they're polished. Somebody once said, adversity is the diamond dust with which heaven polishes its jewels. God, why? I, I, want, I want you to be polished, man. This is to build you up. James wrote, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, right. Pure joy? Trials? Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. That's more fruit. Perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider a Steinway grand piano. 434 strings, tight, taut, exerting a pressure of 40,000 pounds on an iron frame. Proof that out of great tension comes great beauty and harmony. Corrective, constructive pruning. So a true disciple is seen in pruning. Also, true discipleship is seen in in prayer, answered prayer. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bring much or bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. All over the world, people pray. There's many different forms of prayer, many different styles of prayer. It's probably the most common activity of any other activity on earth. Even in America, I read Newsweek, from several issues ago that said three-quarters of Americans, three-quarters of Americans pray once a week. Over half of all Americans pray every day. Now we're praying a little bit more since September 11th. We've noticed that. There's been moments of silence. There have been days of prayer. There's been prayer meetings that have been called. There has been a national day of prayer and in the Washington Cathedral, many different prayers by many different representatives of many different religions to many different gods. Why do we pray? Why do we do that? Well, one sense, 
we have a need to express something to deity, to something superior. We have to air things out. Sometimes people pray, not really to talk to God, but to talk to people. It's just you can get a message across more cleverly if you say, Oh God, you know this is true about this person. Help them to see that as well. In fact, I heard about a little boy who prayed. He said, uh, uh, Dear God, bless Mommy and bless Daddy and bless Auntie and bless Uncle and bless Brother and bless Sister and the dog and the cat. And oh God, please, I want a bicycle. And uh, Mom, tuck him in bed, said, You don't have to yell, God is in death. He said, Well, I know, God is in death, Mom, but... Grandma's in the next room and she's hard of hearing. (laughs) That prayer wasn't directed to God. The prayer was directed to Grandma, whom he hoped would cough up the dough for the bicycle. Well, how do we have effective prayer? How do we make sure that when we pray, it doesn't bounce off the ceiling and dribble down the wall? How do we know it's going to connect and do something? Jesus here promises your prayers answered, doesn't he? You can ask whatever you desire. That's like a blank check. And it will be done for you. Well, it's interesting in this, uh, Jesus doesn't mention praying in a certain place. doesn't say you have to do it in Jerusalem or you have to do it in a church or in a synagogue. There's no mention here of time. He doesn't say just pray on Sundays or Saturday nights in this case. Um, Or before your meals or when the policeman pulls you over. (laughs) Those aren't the prerequisites. The prerequisites of answered prayer, notice Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now we know what that means, to abide in Jesus. We already discussed it. Maintain a close, intimate, living relationship. You seek him daily. You allow him to control your life. You're abiding. You're close. You're like this. Then, the other condition, and my words abide in you. Why is that a condition? Simply for this reason. When you read the Bible a lot, you abide in the Word, you understand its principles, you know how to pray. You have the right directives. You're going in the right direction. I was thinking about this this week, and I I remembered before I came to Christ how I prayed. I remember praying one time when I was committing a crime that God would not let me get caught. What a lame prayer! Is God going to answer that? No. In fact, He didn't. I did get caught, and that's what I needed. That helped drive me to God. God isn't going to answer that because it's absolutely against what is written in His Word. But if you abide in His Word, you'll get the right coordinates. Abide in me and my words abide in you. This is important. Because I know a lot of people who think they can have the person of Christ without the doctrine of Christ. They like the idea of Jesus. They just don't want His teaching. And if they read His teaching and decided to stay the way they are, the two would part soon. Oh, but they like the idea of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, He's so full of love and tolerance and recycling. You know, just whatever. (laughs) My words must abide in you. And when His words abide in you, You know, when you're saturated with Scripture, you're you're the best kind of prayer warrior. 
you've internalized certain principles so much that Jesus said you'll pray what you desire. That's because your desires are going to be His desires. Your desires are shaped by His desires. You've read His Word. Certain things you're automatically not going to pray for. I've told you before about a tornado that happened in a town in the Midwest. As soon as it was happening, a person in the tornado started saying, Auntie M! Auntie M! Because she had so internalized the Wizard of Oz. It was second nature. How about so internalizing the Word of God over time, saturating yourself with it, that it becomes just that natural expression. His Word abiding, it will be done. There's a third mark, and we close with this. It is joy. So, pruning, prayer, and pleasure. Those things mark a disciple besides the fruit. Look down at verse 11. These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Do you know that God intends you to live a joyful life? Do you know that? How many Christians do you know who are genuinely joyful? In the deepest core, joyful. You know, for years, years ago, Christianity used to be connected with black clothing, long, drab, dark robes, droning voices. God bless you. Don't smile. Don't laugh. It's been so misrepresented as if Jesus came to take joy out of life. I don't want to be a Christian. Why? I want to have fun. Are you nuts? He came to put joy into life. My joy would remain in you. Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, I would have entered the ministry except most of the ministers I know remind me of undertakers. Oh, please. It's time to break that. And you know how you break that? You know how you counter that? Joyful Christians do that. Nothing more attractive than somebody filled with the joy of Christ. A theologian wrote these words, Helmut Thielecki, a German theologian. Should we not see that lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as lines of care and seriousness? Is it only earnestness that is baptized? Is laughter pagan? A church is in a bad way when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary and leaves it to the cabaret, the nightclub, and the Toastmasters. How's your joy? Have you been baptized in lemon juice? I'm a Christian. <laughs> Do us all a favor. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> now, joy is not always expressed in laughter. It doesn't mean that you're going to always walk around giddy. Ooh, hey, hallelujah. It doesn't mean that at all, does it? Because look at Jesus. He was called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Yet here he speaks about my joy. All to show us that joy is at a deeper level than just something emotionally outward. It's not always emotionally outward. It's deep. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is outward. It depends on the happenings. Happenings make happiness. Joy is deeper. 
Here's happiness. You get a brand new car. It's brand new. It's shiny. And let's say it's paid for, just to make the happiness even higher. (laughs) It's a nice summer morning. You take it to church. You park it out in front. And you take two parking spaces because it's that cool of a car. And it's just glistening. And you're just happy. And then after church, somebody doesn't see your car as you pull out and crash. The whole back end is folded in. That's the end of your happiness. You had happiness. It is now past tense. You don't have happiness anymore. But you can have joy. Joy, whether you have a new car or an old car, a clean car or a crashed car. You can have joy. Joy is deeper than just the surface happiness. Now, that doesn't mean when bad things happen, you go, Oh, praise God. That's great. That's really great. I'm happy. It means that no matter what, even when you're being pruned severely... Even when you're being pruned, there's a depth of character that is characterized as Jesus' joy. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, joyful. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. I saw an example of that this week. A couple of days ago, there was a shock to this church when a little boy died on one of our mission trips down in Mexico, fell from the rafters and was killed instantly. And we buried him the other day. Surrounding his casket were 24 red and green balloons that his parents had there to celebrate his life and the fact that he was in Jesus' presence. Their heart was broken. The large portion of this body was affected. Suffering, loss, heartache, but I could hear and see joy in their voices. I saw it in their eyes. I saw it in their confession. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you, Lord, for the support of the body of Christ. There was a depth of joy that can only be characterized as Jesus' joy. Well, that's it. That's our study in John 15 up to this point. I want you to just notice something that you have noticed but perhaps didn't keep in the forefront of your mind. Did you notice again the use of the word? The word? Did you notice that Jesus said, These things I have spoken unto you? And did you notice that the Word of God is prominent all the way through in tonight's study? Look at it again. How do you get pruned? By the Word, verse 3. How do you pray effectively? By the Word. And how do you experience real joy? By listening to and applying and obeying the Word. The Word of God is central to all of this abiding in Christ. I spoke to a woman in our fellowship, sweet gal, loves the Lord. She comes sometimes with her husband. He's not into it. He doesn't like it. In fact, he says to her, yeah, I'll come in here, Skip. It's the best sleep I get all week. It's all right. I just got to tell you, if this is the best sleep you get all week, you need better sleep. (laughs) And there's a better way to be restful and to get better sleep than that, and that is to have an abiding, intimate relationship with the one who came to this earth to save you from your sin. When that guilt is taken away, you rest easy. You rest easy. You're filled with His joy. You're producing fruit. People see it. People love to be around you. 
Heavenly Father, we want to applaud maturity. We want to say amen to growing Christians, as well as those who are newly birthed. We want to applaud those older believers who have walked continuously in Christ for many, many years and are still bringing forth fruit. Their example shines. Make us these kind of people, Lord, connected to Christ, cared for by the Father, bearing fruit, enduring pruning with joy, and in the midst of that, having the kind of connection where our prayers are really being answered because they're filled with what you want. It's according to your will. What a great way to live. Thank you for the reminder of this. And now, Lord, we leave, but not your presence. We leave abiding in you, remaining in you. As we get in our car, as, we, as we're on the road, as we go home and meet sometimes difficult family members or neighbors or workers, help us to abide so that others would be attracted by the fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus name.